Welcome. Welcome to Curious Conversations, episode 22. My name is Nick Allen. I am your host. Um, If this is your first time listening, I've basically put this podcast together to have long-form conversations with people on the ideas of health, happiness, nutrition, and psychology. This week, I've got uh, a man named by the name of Pete Tansley coming on. I'll tell you a little bit more about Pete in just one second, because first of all, I wanted to tell you about some nutrition coaching software I am implementing into my business, and I'd like for you to come on board and to give it a go. Um, so I'm opening up a couple of places. It's only got four places total, and I've, so far I've sold one. Um, and this is for people who are wanting to make long-term changes in their eating habits and to learn about nutrition so that they're not just following a plan for a period of time and then falling off the wagon. So people that are wanting to make long-term changes to be healthier, to be leaner, to be stronger, and to have more muscle. Um, it's based around habits. Uh, you're basically given habits every week, and we delve into those and help you to implement those habits so that you don't really have to think about your nutrition. It becomes, well, a habit. Uh, so we take your complex goals and just basically break them all down. I will be providing people accountability and education, uh, and I think it's really good because there's a lot of misinformation out there, but there are some really solid laws in nutrition and there are some really solid habits that you can get into. Uh, So we're just trying to make that really easy for you to start implementing those. I've only got four spots. Um, If you are interested, just shoot through an email to nick at bigpicturept.com.au and I'll sort you out. We can have a bit of a phone call and a chat and just see if you'd be a good fit. Second thing to mention is just if you would like to support the podcast in another way, um, you can head over to our Facebook page and there's a Lifeline link there. Um, I think Lifeline is a fantastic organization running within Australia. They help people in personal distress uh, by offering them phone counseling and it's free. Uh, So if you are ever in need of talking to a counselor and someone who's professionally trained, you can call Lifeline and they have uh, counselors who are waiting there to help you. But they also need some support themselves. They run some really good book fairs. There's one of them coming up in my area at the moment. Um, But you can also support them through our Everyday Hero page, um, which is connected to the Facebook. From memory, you go through something like the story part or an about part on the Facebook page, Curious Conversations on Facebook. Uh, You can click on the the Lifeline link and and jump into that. That's enough for housekeeping though. Um, So today's guest is Pete Tansley. I've known Pete for probably... I would say oh, three, three years probably. Uh, I met him through another one I met through Real Movement Project and he's done some amazing things over the last few years. Uh, he was actually involved within Real Movement for a little while and now he's gone off and started his own little business which helps personal trainers help more people. So he is a business coach um, and we do talk a little bit about marketing in this podcast but I think you'll find it really fascinating because people has a simple way of, of uh, explaining things and you'll be able to see why marketers are doing this, doing what they are doing to try and sell you products online. So once you kind of understand that, it, it starts to become really interesting. You can see the way that they're writing copy and the way that they're trying to sell their, their products to you. And you'll see that my copy from my initial pro coach uh, little explanation at the start about nutrition coaching could use some work. So maybe I'll talk to Pete after this. Uh, some other things that we talk about are books, 
Pete is an avid reader um, and he has a really good strategy. I mentioned on the podcast and it's something that I changed after we did the interview, but I kind of am a bit of a scattered reader. Like I will pick up a book, read it and then change topics really quickly and not necessarily hold on to all the points of the books. But since the conversation, uh, I've put in place Pete's method and I found it really useful for actually being able to get deep on certain areas and understand the concepts a lot better. The other thing we talk about is Pete's story, which you'll start to notice is a bit of a theme I have through these podcasts. Pete went through some pretty hard times and he he hit rock bottom and he explains it in this uh, podcast very well. And uh, it's quite a moving story. And he's, he's managed to get himself out of what seemed like a pretty hard time. Uh, and now he's he's got a pretty really got to stop using those little words. He's got a very successful business and it's doing very well. So without further ado, let's jump into the podcast. Actually, one more thing. If you do want to contact Pete, you can find him on his website, which is www.petetansley, spelled the same way as this podcast. Or you can find him on Facebook, which is at Pete Tansley. Um, And he's got a little personal training community there where he shares marketing tips if you are interested in those. That is it for the intro. So without further ado, here is Pete Tansley. Welcome to Curious Conversations. My name is Nick Allen. Uh, today I'm joined by a good friend of mine by the name of Pete Tansley. Uh, Pete is working in the fitness industry to help business owners impact more people. Um, so welcome to the show, Pete. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here, man. Really cool. Appreciate you taking the time and uh, that we've now finally got a good connection coming on through. Uh, I want to kind of start the conversation around something that I heard you speak on another podcast about, which was the Chalk Strength podcast with Simon Bungate. And you're talking about how you, the, the sort of style of reading that you like to do now, which is picking three books on a specific topic and then kind of going really deep on that topic. Do you want to just quickly explain to us, I know everyone can hear it on the other podcast, but explain to us the concept around that. And then also what sort of topic are you studying at the moment? Yeah, sure. Yeah, dude, great question. Some context to this, what I used to do was read a book a week because that's what you meant to do, right? You meant to like, you know, every success person says to read more, to read more and to just go, you know, I guess balls deep in study and study lots of stuff. But the problem for me, it was very scattered. I was reading a marketing book and then a book on uh, sales and a book on personal development and then it's something completely unrelated. And I found the retention was really, really poor. So I picked up this idea around 12 months ago where if if you want, when when you choose a topic, get a minimum of three books and only read on that topic. And in terms of podcasting as well, only, only listen on that topic as well. So what it does, it prevents you from, you know, immersing yourself in marketing, but then getting an overload with podcasts and radio and other stuff you're watching on, on, on alternate topics. So I found you know, and you know, for me personally, in terms of results, I just found it allows me to go deeper on a topic, 
become more immersed and get a few experts or a few authors' opinions on the same topic at the same time. Yeah, it's great. I can actually um, relate to that quite a lot. I'm at the point where I'm kind of reading a whole bunch of different things and, and getting a bit more lost in, in all these different ideas. I think it's a great concept. Yeah. So what I, what I do now is I, I try to uh, carve out about an hour a day, you know, not, not every day, probably four or five days a week. And the first time I get, I get a book is I do a really a quick pass. So essentially I'm looking for the 80-20 principle applies to a lot of things, right? So essentially I'm looking for what's the 20% of this book which is going to give me 80% of the return. So my first pass in a book is simply looking for what is the 80-20. If it's worth coming back to, then I'll, you know, make, uh, put post-it notes, underline things, uh, you know, uh, just make heaps of notes and notations and take more detailed notes the second time around. Which works really well. Just cut out a little bit there, but... You still there? Yeah, dude. Yeah, cut out a little bit. Okay. I think we're... Yep, yeah, I think we're okay now. Okay. Um, so just, yes. you, you were just up to the bit where you were saying the second time around you underline and put post-it notes on. That's right. So essentially the first pass is quick and uh, looking for the big ideas. The second pass, I'll get my highlighters out, get my, get my pen out and take more detailed notes. Some books don't need a second read. Uh, you can get the main ideas pretty quickly, but others I'll go back and, and read and reread and, and really study the words. Yeah, cool. I think I've kind of heard that concept as well is like if you are reading books on the same theme, you'll often see like if they're around the same topic, you'll be able to pick up what the really important aspects of that topic are because the books are going to mention that those bits and then kind of more of the fluff stuff will be how they've padded out that book and tried to make it a little bit different. Totally. Yeah, 100%. And one of the, so I typically get three books on a topic and I'll make sure one of them is old, you know, say more than 20 years old, and I'll make sure one of them is new. So I get a, a perhaps a past expert or a, you know, a veteran of the industry, whatever they're talking about, and then somebody with some fresher eyes and often those principles will overlap. overlap. Yeah, that's really cool. So what are you reading at the moment or what sort of topic have you been delving into recently? Yeah, so... The one before this was on uh, Tantra and like tantric sex. Currently, I, uh, I'm, I'm studying copywriting, how to make words, uh, you know, influence more people, make more sales, get more clicks, whatever it is you're writing. So at the moment, it's copywriting. So I've got one um, from a dude called Gary Halbert, another one from a guy called John Carlton, and I've got a one from an Aussie uh, an Australian author. Her name is Valerie Koo, and she runs the Sydney Writing School. So those three, like some veterans and then a new female, like is, is quite a good mix. Yeah, that sounds like a really, really good mix. So what are the general concepts that if you're trying to write something that is engaging, is there, is there a general concept that you've been able to come up with? Yeah, good question. There's, there's a couple. I guess if you narrow it down, one of the things is speaking the language your clients would talk. And in the fitness world, I see this a lot. I see trainers writing stuff that their prospects would never, ever, ever say. You know, they might say, uh, you know, one of their posts might be, hey, we'll, we'll improve your, and I'm making this up, but we'll improve your mitochondrial health and we'll increase the length of your hamstrings. 
Yeah. You know, that's important stuff, but no prospect is going to say that. They're just going to say, feel great, get jacked, get shredded, be healthy, be lean. So there's a massive disconnect with uh, the words we use. So that's one is, is not to dumb it down, but to speak the language of, of your client. And I think of the essence of all good marketing is being obsessed with your client or your prospect, which means the words that they use. And the yeah. second thing, so that and it's related to this, is writing in sentences that are easy to read. All right. So, yeah, short sentences, mixing up length of paragraphs and sentences, not just having big, long chunks of text. You know, if you look at like a Stephen King novel, I've got a couple here in my bookshelf, they're, they're easy to read and there's lots of white space and that makes your eyes dart down the page more, which means you get more engaged and, and read more stuff. So that was a really cool tip as well. Yeah, actually, I remember you mentioning to look at the book that Stephen King wrote called On Writing and uh, I found that a fascinating novel to get into and it does help a lot with kind of clarifying how to keep things simple um, and not sort of fill it out with words because you lose people. Yeah, 100%. And not not try to write like you're a science professor but just write like you're having a chat with a mate over a coffee or over a beer. That's how you should, you know, write as well. Yeah. It's an interesting one with my business actually. Um, I wanted to help like corporate males uh, who, and I thought that they would want to get healthy. Like that was the biggest thing they wanted to, they valued their health. And then when I went and actually had a look at the language that they were using in the, the pre-screening forms, uh, no one ever mentions getting healthy. They all want to lose weight or lose body fat or that sort of stuff. So I kind of really had to identify with my market where I was missing the point because I thought most people want to feel good and, and look good, but, they don't actually identify that as in their wording. They actually think that it's more down to losing body fat and that'll everything else will come with it. Yeah, 100%. It's like the old um, battle of wants versus needs. Like, let me tell you a quick story. I, I know of a dating coach and she was trying to fill her program, which was targeted to men. And she was using in her marketing, she was saying, we'll teach you how to be a better listener to your wife. We'll teach you how to understand the masculine versus the feminine. We'll teach you how to resolve conflict. And no one was buying. Then she figured out that it's about wants versus needs. So then she started talking about things like, you'll have more sex. Uh, your wife will nag you less. You'll get more blowjobs. This was some of the marketing she was using. And guess what? She filled her programs. But yeah, right. once, they were, once they were customers, what did she teach them? The same stuff she was talking about before, how to resolve conflicts, how to be a better listener. So it's like, you have to talk about what they want and then when they're in with you, you can give them what they actually need. But if you're talking in needs to the outside world, they're not going to resonate with it at all. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. And I'm much more inclined to buy the second program than the, the first program. 100%. Yeah, right? Every guy's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, given. Easy. Um, okay, cool. Well, let's get a little bit into kind of you as a, as a business coach and talking to people who are running businesses every day. And I guess also from what you've drawn on from being a personal trainer in the industry up until this point, um, are there any similarities that you see with people with the problems that they're facing or the, the limiting beliefs that they're coming to you with? Is it the same as what you were dealing with when you had clients as a personal trainer, as what you're seeing as a business coach? It's just worded differently or do you, are there problems kind of different and, and what sort of problems are you seeing now as a business coach? Yeah, great question. I think, yeah, I've never thought of it that way, but there are a lot of similarities. What I loved about being a PT was not that someone lost 10 kilos, but how that 10 kilos, you know, the ripple effect into their other parts of their life. You know, I had clients who would 
you know, meet the person of their dreams, who would, who would start a business because now they've got confidence, who would get promoted at work because of the, the ripple effect from losing the weight. So I guess, and, and what I love about that is, is the coaching side of things, right? It's never about the weight loss. And the same when it comes to business, most people come to me initially with, I want to make more money or I want to hit this income, income goal or whatever it might be. But it's so much more than that. It's, it's like business is very much personal development, right? You have to work on that stuff and then the business will, will grow. It's like the saying, someone told me once, you know, when I was complaining about something uh, in my 20s, I think one of my first coaches told me, he said, Pete, there's never a business problem. It's a personal problem showing up in business. So if we fix the personal problem, whether it's, you know, taking action, procrastination, uh, overcoming fears or, you know, in, in a conflict, then the business problem will fix itself. Yeah, that totally makes sense and really kind of resonates with me as well. Um, yeah. So what kind of, what are the common things that you're seeing there? Is it procrastination? Uh, I've missed the last two, but is it based at like basically around procrastination or not taking action um, or having a limiting belief that you're seeing within business, business owners? Yeah, 100%. There's, there's a lot of that going on, you know, a fear of being judged, a fear of putting yourself out there. You know, people are worried what their mother will think or what their ex-girlfriend will think, you know, weird people. But also, I think, and this relates to fat loss and health as well, is people overcomplicate it. Yeah. Like people have a laundry list of 247 things they need to do, where in essence, you know, if you look at like the one thing, right, that theory is like identify what's the one thing that's actually going to propel you forward and in fitness, it might be water and green veggies and protein and sleep. Like they're the big rocks. And in business, there's some big rocks like that as well. You know, people are trying to do everything, trying to be everywhere, doing a million different things, but none of them actually move the business, move the needle and move the business forward. Yeah. So what would, what would be a big rock that uh, you could take care of and, and sort of start to clear everything up? For business? Yeah, for business. Yeah, sales. Sales would be, would be definitely up there. Um, I think a lot of people have a fear around either money and some issue around asking for high prices or maybe it's a self-worth thing. But sales, you know, a business lives and dies on sales and it blows me away, people who aren't willing to master it because everything comes back to sales. If you want to help more people and change the world and impact hundreds of lives every year, then you have to be able to have a, a selling system. Yeah, and I guess once you even have a client on board, you've got to be able to sell them on what you're actually doing, like convince them into the solution that they've already already bought into. Yeah, a thousand percent. And it's like selling is so crucial, but I think a lot of it is, is you know, most trainers go into puberty, right? Like if you think of a male in puberty, like their voice starts to break and they get sweaty <laughs> and they get nervous and they look away. It's like asking a girl out for the first time, all because they're asking someone to, to part with their money to train with them. Um, but selling is, it's, you know, I think as an industry, we need to get over this fear. It's not sleazy. It's not pushy. If we're great at what we do, which should be a given, like we're not selling shit to people. If we're great at what we do, we shouldn't have any issues with asking for a quality price for it because what we're giving is changing lives. Yeah, exactly. What would um, you use for somebody who kind of has a funny relationship with money? Is there anything that you get them to do to kind of figure that out or to confront it yeah 100 i think uh you know the inner work around this is some stuff around self-worth and being worthy of earning 100,000 200,000 300,000 dollars uh and i think a lot of pts 
get into this game because they love helping people. You know, I, I doubt there's many PTs, you know, there's people going to Wall Street to make millions, but I doubt there's many PTs saying, I'm going to make a million bucks, so I'm going to be a PT. It's more from a fact that they love what they do and they love helping people. And it's like they push earning money down as a priority. But the number one reason PTs drop out, I think the average, what's the average in Australia, like 12 months or 10 months? Yeah, um, I think it's gone up luckily, but um, I think, yeah, something okay. around that 12-month mark. And there's great people dropping out is because they can't take a holiday, they can't support their family, they can't take two weeks off over Christmas because they're not earning enough. And a lot of that comes back to not having a system to sell and being fearful around that. So I guess to answer your question, to get over that fear of sales, number one it doesn't make you a bad person to earn good money helping people. And that's like a big myth that's out there with healers, trainers, coaches, anyone in this health and wellness helping space. It doesn't make you a bad person if we're giving a great product, right? Um, thing number two is you're being selfish to your loved ones if you're not earning a good money and saving money if something happens to them. Like I think of my kids now, I think of my parents, like, I would absolutely hate something to happen to them and I couldn't afford the world's best care. You know, touch wood, that never happens. But I think money is just a, a multiplier of freedom and it can give you the freedom to help people and to reward your family if you need it. And the third thing will be to do the inner work, um, do the affirmations, do whatever you need, do the journaling and get the stuff out of you that, that is equating earning money to being a good person. And I think like, you know, my parents, amazing. I had an amazing upbringing. Like, you know, we never went without anything, but the, the, way, they were, the way they grew up, you know, through World War II, dad's family came out here in a boat, spent seven weeks on a boat from Ireland. You know, money was tight. And the theory then was like, as I grew up was, you know, money doesn't grow on trees and we're not made of money. So I think getting around that conditioning from such an early age will multiply your business. Yeah, I think that's... That's going to be really helpful. Um, it's interesting you say those two things as well, like money doesn't grow on trees or we're not made of money. I did an exercise earlier this year with a coach of mine where you literally just write out um, like money is and just empty your brain of like what money is. People with money are and just empty your brain. And it's amazing how many conflicting things you have around those. So like you might see like money gives me freedom. Money, um, money is helpful. Money is great money isn't uh, is for bad people or, or whatnot. So you have like these conflicting beliefs, which kind of really stir people up because they do want more money, but then they also associate money with evil or bad people. And so it kind of, when those beliefs are in there, it's, it's quite hard to keep progressing. Yeah, hundred percent. There's um, T. Harbecker who was huge, like in the nineties. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's like a money mindset dude. Yeah, he, yeah. he had this client um, who was netting like a net profit of $1.5 billion per year. But somehow to the dollar, he was spending $1.5 billion per year. Now that's, uh, you can have some fun spending that, right? Like 80, hundred grand a month was just going like on boats and cars and parties. And he got to the gist of it. And as a kid, his mom always used to think rich people were evil. So subconsciously, he didn't want his mum to think he was evil. So even after he netted $1.5 million US per year, he was spending it all because he didn't want to piss off his mum who didn't even know how much he was earning. So there's all these like deep conditioning stuff which, which comes out. Yeah. That's a, that also reminds me of another story of, um, I think it was John D. Martini tells it as well, which is kind of similar where the guy was just earning something 
stupid, but not budgeting or, or looking at it at all and just spending it in ridiculous right. ways or from beliefs that they held below before that. And I, and I dare say it's, it's even worse in Australia. Um, I think it is worse down here, whether because we're all derived from convicts or whatever the first shipment came out here, most of us. But um, I think that tall poppy attitude and that's that, uh, that thinking around money is really, um, is really prevalent here. Oh, that's interesting. Do you coach a few people internationally, don't you? I do, yeah. Is there a difference that you see in those two? So whether like Australian uh, personal trainers or, or people in the fitness industry compared with the people, other people that you're coaching elsewhere? Totally, yeah. So there's, I find Australia and New Zealand versus Americans, for example, is black and white. You know, oh, right. Americans, you know, uh, they just think anything's possible. And I say, all right, we're going to do this per year or this per month. And like, okay, cool. But I think Australians, it's like unheard of to think bigger and to make more of an impact and to be seen. Whereas in America, that's the norm. That's what their country's built on, you know? So there's a, there's a massive difference there for sure. What do you think that's caused by? Yeah, I think a lot of it is just the culture here. Um, and I know New Zealand's the same from, I haven't lived there, but from people I've spoken to where the culture in America is it's normal for someone to, start a $10 million per year business. Like it's not as, you're not as much of an outlier if you do that. And I, yeah, I do think here, like, you know, I think if someone drives a supercar down the street, people think, oh, he's ripped people off or sold drugs or robbed the bank. Whereas over there, it's like, let's celebrate this too. Let's celebrate their success. Yeah. That's coming back to that tall poppy syndrome that you always hear about within Australia. Totally. That's fascinating. It's interesting to hear from somebody that is coaching on both sides of the, uh, the water <laughs> it's gonna be the wrong term the but yeah, yeah. both sides yeah. of the pond the atlantic um and, and the difference that they've got there let's get a little bit into your story pete so um i, I love stories and I, I think that you've got quite a journey to kind of fill us in on so as i sort of understand it we started off in a kind of similar way we were both slightly overweight or i would call myself a bit of a fat kid at school um you were in the same sort of boat right yeah totally i was i was chubby uh, I was sort of like skinny fat, you know, like I was, I looked alright in uniform, but when it came to school swimming, I was sort of embarrassed to get my gear off and, uh, yeah, was, was, was a chubby kid. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think I probably was around about the same sort of thing. What sort of age did you start to try and overcome this and like become interested in, in health and fitness? Yeah. I, I, I think it was a, from a negative experience, really. Like I was really active. Like my mum was a swimming coach and I was a good swimmer all through junior and middle school. So I was literally training 10 times a week in the pool. Right. But I was still, I never tested it, but I was guessing, I don't know, maybe 20% body fat, a little bit over. Um, part of that was the diet that was encouraging, you know, like 10 week weeks of a morning, Milo before bed, like all this yeah. sugary. <laughs> Um, but I think my first experience, I think it was grade seven. I remember being bullied around having man boobs and I was like, God, this sucks. Like I've never been bullied before. And, um, yeah. So that then I started to really take more of an interest and ask people like, how do I, you know, not have this or how do I lose this? And that's probably when all that started for me. Okay. And what, what actions did you start to take? Well, I started to train more and I was doing like no strength training and, you know, Typical swimmers training two hours in the morning, two hours at night. So everyone said, well, to lose weight, you just have to move more. And then the problem with that was I got more hungry. So I actually ate more. and I think I put on more weight. 
All right. So, so it didn't work. And, you know, my coach is back then, you know, one of the Australia's famous swim coaches, Laurie Lawrence, who was my coach, and he was like, Pete, you've got to eat, you know, 10 – I think he was sponsored by Uncle Toby's. He was like, Pete, you've got to eat 10 serves of carbohydrates a day. So I was like, right, I'm going to eat more and get really lean, and it didn't happen either. Isn't that so sad that kids are, like, following these instructions that we – everybody genuinely thinks is correct but just not healthy. Yeah. And he was like, don't do any weight training. It'll stunt your growth, but just eat more carbs and swim more and, uh, you know, do some stuff with this exercise band. And, you know, he, he was training like Olympic swimmers and he was giving them the same advice as well. So it was horrible advice. It wasn't really until I had a growth spurt. I think like maybe grade 10, what's that, 15, 16. I, I probably went from, I don't know, five, seven to six feet in like a few months. And then obviously just because I grew so much, I was leaner. Um, and then I, you know, delve further into study and nutrition. And my first book ever was, um, Paul check how to eat and move and be healthy, which your mentor gave me. And I started to change diet and do strength training from there. And then it was, then it was fine. Well, that's really interesting. Cause I'm being, I'm like very much into Paul check's work at the moment and how to eat, move and be healthy is just like such a good starting book for anybody who's interested in, in the basics and, and getting a bit of a idea of how to, to get things and he was just really ahead of his time paul totally yeah he was the only one that i remember back then uh you know teaching other trainers like is common now but yeah he was a real pioneer in that regard and his book's fantastic like for someone beginner to intermediate even some advanced stuff in there it's yeah it's a great resource well even just the thing that i've kind of been looking at more is the the idea around working in as opposed to just working out um and that was in that book and like now recovery and, and using recovery techniques is massive, but uh, nobody was talking about that even five, six years ago. Yeah, a hundred percent. It was very much an Eastern like philosophy thing, right? But even yeah, now, you know, I saw him on the uh, Aubrey Marcus podcast the other week and he's talking about that still and it's the same principles, you know, 20 years later, still holding up or 15 years later. Yeah. That podcast was deep. Like it, it, <laughs> It was hard to fully pay attention to everything as he was talking about it. Yeah, I agree. What's funny is, and um, I, I went off Paul Check a few years ago. I thought uh, he was going a bit woo-woo for me and it triggered me. So I sort of unfollowed his, his teachings for a while. But recently I've come back in alignment with him. Probably he hasn't changed. Probably I've developed and caught up to the stuff he's teaching. And now I'm like, damn, I love his stuff now. But at the time I was like, what is this nut job talking about, you know? Yeah, I think a lot of people in the fitness industry were like that. I just interviewed, um, or maybe a month ago, Donald Carr, who yeah. I don't know if, if you're around the fitness first at all. He was kind of the educator, the main educator yeah. around there for Paul Check stuff. Uh, and he was saying that everything Paul teaches is about eight years in front of where the fitness industry gets to. And it kind of seems like that is is a true statement like you can sort of see the things that he was previously teaching and now starting to come to fruition same thing happened with ian king as well um yep yeah 100 um it's cool cool to see it come through and it's also exciting to be able to try and learn it before everybody else gets into it ahead of the curve yeah 100 anyway i'm rambling i want to hear a bit more about your story so that was uh through school and now you you kind of did you go straight into health and fitness i think you did straight out of school yeah, so so I had that growth spurt and then I was tall. I went to a, a school that played rugby. So I started playing rugby more and then finished school. I went to a really nice school, but a huge pressure on uh, what to do next. You know, they line with the top colleges in Queensland and we're pushing everybody through them. And I was like, you know what? 
this is not for me. I probably had the brain of a 14-year-old when I was 18. Like, I was immature. So I got a job at the local gym, the same mentor who gave me the Paul checkbook, just said, approach these guys and, and, and just start somewhere. And back then, this was 2002, there was no Fitness First, there was no really uh, chain gyms here at all. And I was at a Bond University, a private gym in Queensland uh, on the Gold Coast, and I started scrubbing toilets on a Sunday morning. Like, that was my first job. And then from there, I was there for five years and did everything from deep water running to tennis coaching to uh, the pool maintenance to running group. Like, I taught group exercise, like um, pump and spin and personal training, and all that stuff. And that was my first, that was like my apprenticeship to the industry. Whilst I was there, the fitness game took off. You know, Fitness First came here and had 100 gyms overnight. Um, the 24-7 craze was just beginning. I started going to things like Filex every year and getting some mentors. And that's when I just dove deep into study as well. Like I started learning so much about psychology and influence and sales. And then whilst I was there, because I was at a university, I thought, you know what? If I want to be a proper businessman, I better get a business degree. So I, I was studying business there as well. But that was my apprenticeship into uh, the fitness world. And it was amazing because it was, they don't really exist like that anymore. Like a big club with racket sports, group exercise, you know, 4,000 members plus the university students. It was massive and a great time. Yeah, I kind of wish things like that existed a little bit more. I, I would happily be a member of a, a really big fitness uh, place where you could do racket sports would be awesome. Dude, it was amazing. It was like a, yeah, it was like a perfect setup for any, you know, there's, there's people there from, you know, 10 from learn to swim classes right through to 90 and, you know, 95 year olds playing racquetball, you know, like it was a real family and it was an amazing setup. It's probably lost a bit of that now with the commercialism of fitness, but it was a cool place to sort of, um, you know, get my apprenticeship in. Was there any key things that you kind of learned from that? Like that you've, that you think have come through with you two up until today? Yeah, hundred percent. Some of my first clients there were professors of, you know, in the university and, and, and very high up. So I learned to deal with a, like a wide range of people really early. Um, my problem was I looked like a 12 year old, like I had, I still do, but I have a really, had a really young face. So I had to like, and people judge you on that. They think who's this 15 year old teaching me stuff. So I had to back it up with, with, get, with getting results. And then after about, I don't know, a year or two, I was managing, I had a team of like 20 staff. I was managing that staff. So I learned a lot about management, motivation, you know, setting goals with staff and what didn't work, you know, what I learned, for example, is I couldn't manage all staff the same way where there was a young, some young guys there who liked being competitive and liked, you know, setting goals where if I showed to them, so if I showed the same way to them that I did to, you know, the 50 year old female receptionist, she would have gone home in tears. So I learned to not manage how I like to be managed, but manage in accordance to their personality style and, and tweaking my style for, you know, not being a fake, but being a, a bit of a chameleon to match their personality and to match how they like to be managed. Oh, awesome. I imagine that helped a lot coming through into coaching as well. Yeah, 100%. There's so many crossovers, just dealing with, dealing with people. And, you know, I met some amazing clients there and mentors that had some of those clients for nine years or they came with me and I opened my gym. So I, yeah, some amazing relationships were built then for sure. Yeah. So you opened a gym and then how old were you when you first opened your, opened the doors? So I was in my early twenties. Like I started at when I was 17 or 18. So I must've been, I think 22 or 23. Um, 
That's, I don't uh, think there's there's anybody that's open that I can think of that's opening a gym around that age at the moment. Actually, there'd be a couple, but that, that would have been a massive step for a 22 year old at the time. Yeah, yeah, it was, and I was I was pretty naive, but I guess that's I think you need to be sometimes. Like I was studying business, but it really pissed me off because the people teaching, you know, entrepreneurship and sales and and, and business had never had it apart from one. You know, 99 percent of them had never been successful in business. And I was like, what am I spending? It was a private uni. Why am I spending a very high amount of money to study here when I'm learning textbook theory? And I think the style of teaching, the style of education didn't suit me. So I was like, you know what? I don't need this. I looked at the people like Richard Branson and, um, you know, people who didn't have a college degree to, to, to do well in business and thought, you know what? I can, uh, I can do this on my own. So I had some backing. One of my clients gave me some cash and the rest, I just hit up some clients. So I said, hey, you normally, I don't know, let's say you normally spend $3,000 a year with me. If you pay for 12 months in full, I'll discount it to 1500 bucks and you save 50% and you come to my brand new facility. So I had, uh, I think nine or 10 people say yes to that. So straight away, I had, you know, capital overnight with no finance and I could fund the, the, uh, the new studio, but there were some hiccups. As it happened, the global financial crisis hit and uh, lenders cracked down, real estate agents weren't lending, everyone was fearful and uh, it took, one of my clients knew a lot of people and he, he spoke to the agent who, who owned the commercial leasing place and they knew each other from years back and I managed to get a back door. But without that, I would never have got a lease and uh, would never have found a location. Dude, that's fascinating. That's a, that, I've never heard of that strategy of opening a gym to begin with, with just asking clients for, for a backing to be, uh, at the start. But um, yeah, is that something you've used with, with other PTs since then um, in coaching? Yeah, them? I have. Um, I don't know that. I've, I've said it to a lot of people, but I don't know how many have actually done it. But I think it's simple. Like they already trust you. They already like you. They say 50%, so they win. Um, yeah, and you get overnight finance free. You can get 10 or 20 grand pretty easily or even more. You can get um, a lot of money up front if they're paying for. Yeah, really good idea. And then you were hit with the global financial crisis. Um, was there a large amount of stress that came with that or were you able to hold it together and keep that kind of naive childlike yeah, mind? I, I think naivety definitely helped. Um, we, I started with a model... And I was with my girlfriend at the time. We, you know, she was like working with me, like just helping me out. We she was, with a she was a model or the business model? No, sorry. The, the business model yeah, was, no, I thought that. <laughs> uh, was a one-on-one model. So we just did one-on-one. You know, and I tried to make this five-star service where people came in, they got a fluffy towel, they got a branded bottle of water. You know, they had like all this you know, high-touch uh, service to, to begin with. And that worked well. But the GFC hit and our family kept hitting this ceiling of how many sessions we could have. And this was probably, I'm just trying to think of a timeline for this, maybe 09, 010. And I'd read about this dude in the USA doing this thing called semi-private training. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to try to switch the model. So stupidly, overnight, like with no warning, now I think most entrepreneurs can relate to this. We often make quick decisions, which, you know, someone behind us has to clean up the mess. But like my decision overnight was right. Let's switch to semi-private training. The cost per hour is better. The staffing's way less. 
So we switched over. And in hindsight, we probably sort of switched a little bit slower because some people were still happy to pay high price one-on-one. Um, but we switched to semi-private and that was the sweet spot. Like a lot of people are doing it now, but I found it was the sweet spot because clients could pay, you know, 90 or $100 for multiple sessions per week, still a great culture, still get some one-on-one coaching, which means I would stay for longer and refer more people. Yeah, it's a great idea. Was that from Alan Cosgrove that you got that? I did first hear about it. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Good switch. So that was around 2009, 2010. Yeah. And then from what I know, it sort of it had peaked at some point. Yeah. So, it, dude, it was cranking. We had, uh, for a while, we had, I sustained like 150 members paying full price plus one-on-one on top. I started, um, you know, trainers were coming to me saying, how do you do this? So I started teaching some of those on the side. I also started doing retreats in Bali like three or four times a year. Um, so my focus was pretty spread across all that stuff, but the semi-private model was a winner. And you know what? I used to think, you know, clients can't get good results, you know, semi-private as they can one-on-one. But if anything, man, they got better results because the, the, the atmosphere was better. The energy was higher, which means they stayed for longer. Yeah, I can imagine that would, that would be very useful there. You actually have a really interesting story around one of your retreats. I think it was the first one uh, that I remember hearing you talk about back in Real Movement. On a, on a call, um, yeah. I think it was something to do with cash. Can you reiterate that story? <laughs> yeah, of course. So back then, no one was doing retreats. Um, I think there was one other company, Active Escapes. I think they're still going. It was at, as far as I knew, it was just me and them. And I sold it out. Like I think I sold ten or twelve spots. And I got there, and the dude's like, "Okay, so you need to pay the final instalment of you know, I think it was ten grand US." For the, for the property, for the accommodation. I was like, yeah, cool. I'll just do a transfer. And he said, no, 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 we need cash. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's easy. I'll just go to the bank. The bank wouldn't allow me to get money out because it, my, my bank back here was blocking it. So I literally had to stand in an ATM. And in Bali, if you've been, I think the maximum you can withdraw is like 1.5 million, which is like 100 bucks or 150 Aussie bucks. And I had to get 10 grand out in $150 transactions in the ATM. But every time you do that overseas, there's like a transaction fee of $3 or $5, something ridiculous. Yeah, something stupid. I literally paid that much money in ATM fees. It just ate away all my net profit. Like it was, I, I was standing there for like 90 minutes doing a million transfers and, uh, you know, literally had like a briefcase of cash because the money's over there. It's nothing. Um, I and- actually might have had to go to different ATMs as well. I don't know if one ATM would have sufficed with, 10,000 over there there's like uh, there's like six in a row of ATMs so I was was going between them and it took a long time and it was an absolute nightmare so that was a great lesson the first retreat I made no money thanks to that Uh, (laughs) but after that the ones after that did really really well but yeah that was a good lesson in um, researching and you know now I've got people on my team who dot the dot the I's and cross the T's because that's not my personality type yeah, right. What is your personality type? What do you bring to the table? What's Pete Townsley good at? So, I'm not sure if you studied Wealth Dynamics, the personality profiling by Roger Hamilton. No, but I haven't. Mine is definitely a creator. So I'm great at coming up with the ideas, thinking big picture, getting everybody excited and getting things started. But I'm horrible at finishing things. Yeah. So... That's, that's when you're on your own, you just have to be wary of that. Now I've got team members who can 
who can do that stuff, you know, with me and help me out. But it's important. And for years, I, I hired people who are like me. And I was like, why the fuck am I get anything done? We've got great ideas. You have great energy, but there was no finishes. So now when I hire, I actually put people through the wealth dynamics test. And if I need to create a great, but I might need someone on the steel side of things, which is a finisher and mechanic and details orientated. For those who have done disc profiling, I'm like a high DI and I need people on my team who are an S or a C to balance that out. I, we used to use disc at one of the old uh, gyms that I worked at. Yeah, it's a really cool tool, but uh, wealth dynamics goes into a little bit more detail, especially around, um, around business. Yeah. I might make a note of that and have a look at that. Yeah. It's Perfect, well so you were running retreats, the gym was pumping. Yeah. Um, sort of what, what happened then? Yeah, sure. So at the same time, the girlfriend who I said at the very start, I uh, married and we had twins. So in all that happening, we, you know, we, got, we, we got married quickly uh, when, when Vanessa was pregnant and then the twins arrived and my focus was all over the place. So I had retreats going. I was doing online coaching as well. I had the gym, I had staff, and then I had some relationship problems. Like we were not going great. Twins added to that is a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of stress, um, you know, literally like you'd sleep 30 minutes a night. Like it's a really horrible thing to have one newborn, let alone two who don't sleep. <laughs> yeah. so it was a tough time. Around the same time, the lease for the gym was up for renewal. And I had, dude, I had lost the plot. I was, I was not sleeping. I was hustling. And I said that with like inverted commas because I thought it was like this bragging thing to, you know, work 16 hours a day or 20 hours a day and get no sleep. I thought I was invincible. But I was starting to make stupid decisions. And, you know, I was dropping the ball with all those projects going on. I thought I was invincible. I didn't really ask for help in, in some of those areas. And looking back now, as always, um, you know, you can see the lessons. But when that lease came up for renewal, our relationship was, was really bad. Like it was on the rocks and we pretty much decided to part ways. So it all happened in one month. We split. We decided to go our separate ways. We're still married. You have to be, you had to be separated for a year to be divorced. But we essentially said, let's get a divorce. It's not working. The twins were, I don't know, 10 months old, 12 months old. And the lease was up and I was like, I can't do this anymore. I was like, I can't work for long hours. I'm not enjoying work anymore. I'd put on weight again because I was, you know, just not handling all the projects going on. So we didn't renew the lease. Um, my manager at the time, you know, we sold some stuff and he kept it going and, you know, the clients were fine. But I literally within, you know, I think a couple of days of each other, I got out of the gym and then I moved back in home with my mum. Um, so I was like, how old was I? It was the eve of my birthday. Cause I remember that it was my birthday Eve and I should have been out celebrating with friends, but instead I was, you know, I brought one box with me and moved back into my mother's house, which is probably the lowest point of my life. Yeah. That's, that's a lot going on for one month. Dude. Yeah. It was hectic. So what did that sort of feel like when you got to that bottom point? Dude, really bad. Like, uh, for the first time in my life, like from 18 to, you know, almost that next decade, I had a lot of direction and clarity in my life. You know, like I'm this motivated, energetic, young business owner. I've got this beautiful family, you know, like 
everyone said that to me all the time. Like, wow, your life's amazing. Like you're earning good money, beautiful twins on the way, you're married. I wish I had your life. And then, you know, literally not that long later, I was, I well, the business had, you know, I, I let go of the business, it had gone, I didn't renew the lease and I was recently single and I felt like, fuck, I've got, what the hell have I got going for me? So it was a really tough time and, um, you know, I fell into a pretty dark place for the next couple of months. I didn't do anything. I denied, you know, I said no to all friends or anything socially. I was thinking like, you know, I've got these young kids who look up to me and I'm just this loser of a, of a dad. Like I'm, I'm living with my mom and I, it really hit me mentally. Um, I guess maybe up until then I, I was pretty bulletproof with my confidence. But at that point, dude, I was like, I was at rock bottom. I never thought about, uh, you know, suicide or anything that dark, but I was definitely like in a really dark place. And, um, you know, I knew I wanted to start a business again and do big things and, and, you know, change the world, make a massive impact. But I was like, had, was having panic attacks and was really anxious and was in my head. I was like, I can't even show my face. People, people are going to think I'm a loser in the street and they're going to egg my car or, you know, try to punch me out. But it was just this story in my head. But I thought, um, you know, I'm going to have to move countries. You know, like I can't even be seen here because people will think I'm a loser. Jeez. And then so that's, that's obviously like a really tough point in anybody's life. How did you start to take the steps towards uh, feeling better and, and getting a bit more momentum? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've met, I've, a mentor called me out of the blue and just said, dude, I've heard what happened, but, you know, you, you haven't failed. Nothing's... You, you, you know, nothing, it's just, it's, just a, it's just a new chapter of your life. Now you can either be a sook about it and, and, you know, be down in the dumps. But he told me all these stories about, you know, his early failings. He'd been bankrupt twice, for example. Um, he's, he was divorced once and this guy I massively looked up to is like, Pete, this is just a blip on the radar. Like you will learn so much from this. You haven't hurt anybody. You've done nothing wrong. You know, you, you know you'll find, you'll launch a new business and do fine just at the moment you've had two major things, you know, a divorce and a change of business happen to you and you're just feeling low. And after that, slowly, you know, it's never overnight, but slowly I crawled sort of out of that hole and, and, and started to, you know, get some early wins. The first thing I did, I went to fitness first just as a PT. You know, I was managing 150 clients plus five full-time staff, you know, a million dollar business. I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna go back and be PT. And it was, dude, it was easy. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd work a few hours in the morning, a few hours at night, income was up again and uh, it was really easy to get going again. But it took just one chat with someone I had a huge amount of respect for to sort of to start that turnaround process. Yeah, that's kind of motivating uh, almost to think about who I could call and, and just have a chat and see how they're going and, and almost just give them that reignition and, and restart. Do you do that practice every now and then, kind of take take notice of who in your life might be going through a hard time and, and give them a bit of a call? Yeah, a hundred percent. I try to at least. Um, yeah. I th- someone told me, I think Ty Lopez and he's got one cool thing, which I like. And he's like <laughs> the, the 33, like he's like 33% of your time should be, you know, aspiring to be with people above you, whether along on their journey, 33% should be people on your same level and 33% should be mentoring those, you know, not underneath you, but, you know, a few steps behind you on the journey. And I think that's, that's true. Yeah. To, to reach out for people. And you know, like I said, I was never, 
I was never suicidal, but you can, I can see like that male pride and that male ego. It can really stop you from asking for help. So I think if you take the, the front foot with that and reach out to people and just ask, how are you? And, you know, I think it's a powerful thing. Yeah. Um, it is definitely hard to, to, to take loss and to take hits like that, especially it sounded like it was just a horrible sort of couple of months for you in a row, which led up to that point. Yeah, hundred percent. And like they, they, you know, multiplied each other. Um, yeah, which was just a, a big kick in the nuts. And it was just a, a lot of pride was at stake, but looking back, nothing, you know, relationship breakups happen. The business was fine. It just, the, the manager took over and, you know, I just didn't renew the lease. But in my head, I was like, I failed. I didn't build an empire as much of an empire as I wanted. You know, a lot of it was just the self-talk in my head. Yeah. It's kind of like that ebbs and flows. Like you had this really high peak where everything was going really well and people would almost be looking at your life and thinking how awesome it was. And then obviously came down in this kind of low and things seemed worse than they they realistically were. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, you know, I had wanted to, you know, I, I, I'd wanted to change the Australian fitness industry and, and do lots of things in my mind. I hadn't done that. So I thought I was a failure, but looking back, you know, hundreds of lives would change. I employed five full-time staff. Like all that stuff was amazing that I had done, but you just beat yourself up and that doesn't quite go to plan. Yeah. And it's a long process. I kind of see myself in the same sort of shoes. You want to really improve and help everybody. But I mean, there are guys like we mentioned Paul check before, who's what, like 56, 57 and he's still, working on making an influence in the industry. So it's kind of hard. You feel like you want to achieve everything in your twenties, um, but you got to have that long-term vision. Totally. do. I definitely didn't. I was really impatient. Um, I think of it now, like, you know, the icons of our time, you know, most people don't really hit their stride until their fifties and sixties. And I'm like, you know, I'm only 31 now, but I think for a lot of guys, we read about, this unicorn in business who, you know, sells out for 10 billion bucks or starts this empire in their mum's basement when they're 17. But they're the rarities. I think the, the game of life or the game of business is a marathon. And for most guys, that means the finish line is, you know, we're going to live to it 90, 100, 100 plus. So our prime in business, you know, experience plus, you know, our, our best mental state is going to be in our 50s, 60s and 70s. Yeah. And actually, just while you're talking about that, a kind of... um makes me think as well, like in an industry like personal training or education or, uh, or any of these kind of industries, they're, they're things where it's, there's very much a knowledge base that you need to have. Whereas a lot of the people that uh, you see that have those, that really quick success, they're selling some sort of service or they're creating a product um, which maybe doesn't need as much of a depth in knowledge base. It just needs that more invention around the idea or the concept and then being able to execute that. I think those ones are the ones that, tend to be the quick successes that you kind of see and you're like, Oh, that's 20, that 22 year old that's making billions of dollars. Whereas the people that I don't know, I look up to um, in reflection and, and talking to you are often those people that are, are a bit older and they're, they're more knowledgeable and they're able to help people through their knowledge and their service. And that's, that's kind of really important to keep in, in my mind, at least talking to myself here <laughs> because that's where I want to get to. Yeah, 100%. And that's the beauty of telling their stories. It's, it's often teaching yourself as well. And I think, yeah, patience is, is super important. We read about, you know, the guy who makes the news or the Forbes list of these, you know, are these unicorns. But most people, it's the slow and steady approach, you know? Yeah, exactly. And it's not always uh, what, it's, what it's washed up to be. Uh, what it's, that's definitely totally. not the expression. Um, yeah, yeah. 
I spoke to, you remember Jordan Travis from The Real Movie Project? He worked at... His book arrived yesterday and I'm really keen to rip into it, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, definitely have a read of it. But um, when I was researching for his podcast a a week or two ago, I found out that he actually earned from cryptocurrency, he earned a million dollars from, I don't know, 2000 that he'd he'd invested. And uh, just talking to him and he was like, "It, it seems really great, but it actually comes with a whole bunch of anxiety of like, you don't want to mess this up are people going to see me differently like what should i start to do how should i spend my time so as much as it looks great on the outside of earning heaps of money really quickly it also comes with this other element of baggage dude it's so true i when i, I was fortunate to work at bond Union, like i was saying and i think it it's it's rated as like the top or the, or the second best private university in australia and a lot of people you know there's kids from sydney melbourne around australia who fly here but so do all these these parents send their kids to Bond from um, the Middle East, from Europe, from Russia. And these kids are worth school. Like they're, they're an heir to a throne worth money we can't even comprehend. Like their first cars are Ferrari. There's Ferraris, you know, with P plates in, in the car park, right? That's the kind of university it is. And I got mates with all these guys. Like some of them were, um, you know, one of them from Sydney, for example, he was a, his grandfather had started a, a food company, which was worth, you know, it's like a top 10 company in Australia and the anxiety he had about taking that over and like being in what I call the LSC, the lucky sperm club, you know, he's just born into this. They had so many hangups around being judged and will I fail and so much pressure on them. So yeah, whether you're worth $10 or $10 billion, there's different levels of anxiety and, and pressure that comes with that. It's interesting. Yeah. It's fascinating, especially because we're from a culture that values, like we're talking about values money as the measure of success and so, um, yeah, whether you're inheriting the money and, and then you suddenly ex- kind of have this, that means that I'm a success, but you don't really understand why you're a success. There'd be so many different things going on. hundred percent. Yeah. It's always deeper than what we think. Yeah. Um, so you, you kind of touched on it already, but was there anything that you were able to do to reset your mindset around, well, after that? that low point and, and failure, was it just taking a one step at a time or was there anything that you actually sat there and, and planned out and went through? Yeah. The first thing I realized was it's going to be okay. You know, the business had changed course and got a plan, but no one died. A relationship had ended, but the net result was two beautiful twins. Like they're, they're amazing. And that was the first realization was that everything was going to be okay. Then I was gifted a book called Psycho-Cybernetics. And it talks about a lot around identity and how we see ourselves, right? It's an old book, but it's, it's, it's a killer. It's got some great strategies. And it's like we, we, act as, we, we act as if who we see ourselves to be. So if we see ourselves to be someone earning 50 grand a year and you know, only doing X, Y, Z, then our actions are going to be aligned with that. So I went through like a pretty rigorous process of changing that identity and seeing myself as a new person. And that was powerful. Like, for example, when, when clients join my program, I send them that book in their welcome pack um, with a handwritten, like, card or write that book's important. It's like the first book I give to people who want to blow up their business is changing your identity. And... Yeah, some super powerful stuff about like acting as if you're the person you want to be, the person who would carry out those things effortlessly and the person who would, uh, you know, would, would do the actions to build an important business or to have the, the relationship of your dreams is to act as if you're that person first. 
Um, and that comes with changing that identity. And, you know, everyone from, from Robbins to uh, Tiha Becker to Martini all talk about this, right? But you have to shift that identity. That was number one. And that was, like, super important. And then was every day a, I just... Was there an action that you took? Like, um, was there something that, an example you could use of, of how you were acting in that way? Yeah, yeah, 100%. So the, the things I did daily, like, if you want to take this into daily... Uh, little draw targets, things you can apply. Number one was a, a really powerful visualization exercise, which is just seeing yourself um, as an identity you wish to become. And, and, and imagine it coming, it comes easily and it comes effortlessly and you're having fun living this dream life. And that was 30 minutes a day. I, I still do that most days, but at the time I, I did like, right, I'm going to do a week in a row, a month in a row. And I think I went like 400 days in a row of doing this daily visualization. Um, and the second thing was every day just reviewing what, what that goal is and why you're working hard and try to really feel what that would feel like. So for me, I imagined, um, you know, checking my, my software, which tracked how many members and clients I have and just imagining the hundreds of people in there. I imagined talking with my team and, and working on cool stuff and changing lots of lives. Like I visualize all that stuff happening. So that were the two things like the daily exercise and every morning really trying to feel what that would feel like and it might sound woo-woo but I guess it is but I'd rather be you know a little bit weird and living my dream than cool and and still stuck at whatever level I was at yeah 100% it's good fun being weird as well 100% yeah it's awesome um the background on that book psycho cybernetics he was a plastic surgeon is that correct correct yeah and a lot I've, of I've not actually read it but if you could just briefly outline what you remember from that. Yeah, he was a, a plastic surgeon, if you like. And he would find people would come to him and say, my nose is massive. It's affecting everything in my life. And he would look at them and think, your nose is completely fine. Like they had this identity in their head that they had this massive, you know, honker when it was just a normal sized nose. But one of the things, probably the key thing he learned was most of the changes he would make would be like, uh, something like a quarter of a centimetre or even like one-tenth of a centimetre. And they would come out of the operation and recover and in their head see a totally different person. You know, in their head, their nose had gone from you know, half a mile long to a normal size and they would act completely differently. And it led him down this pathway of studying identity and how we see ourselves and how we act out in accordance to how we see ourselves. So it's a fascinating book. He's also got... Um, and I like to read books that aren't, that aren't always in the airport bestsellers book. You know, the books that I think if you read the same books as everybody else, then you'll think like everybody else. Yeah. Seeing the so, subtle art of not giving a fuck going around everywhere at the moment. Totally. Yeah, 100%, right? Um, and he's got another book. So his name is Max, Maxwell Maltz. His other book is called Zero Resistance Selling. I spoke about selling before. So definitely psycho-cybernetics for identity, for mindset, for growth. And his one around business is called Zero Resistance Selling. And what does that one sort of go into? A similar thing, but around um, the identity of your prospect and how to influence them and how to just really listen and ask great questions. Oh, cool. I'll definitely get into that. Yeah, there's a lot of crossover between the two, but yeah, I highly recommend getting both. Yeah, perfect. That sounds like a good book to get to. Um, Let's just 
I've kind of held you on here for a little while. So let's jump into kind of five areas uh, or ideas that a successful business would need to maybe start generating. I wrote down in the question, start generating 100K or at least to be clear on what their version of success would be. Um, when you're helping just generally businesses, uh, we've mentioned sales before, but what are five areas that you can kind of see in 2018 that people could work on and start getting, getting really clear on? I don't know if that's a yeah. very good question there, but if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah I do. I, I think firstly, number one is to realize you, they may not need 12 months to hit hundred grand. I think that might be say two grand a week or 2.5 grand a week. If we have a good system, that could happen in 90 days or less if, if someone's ready for that. So they might not need that amount of time. But if they did, I think number one, which flows on from what we're just talking about, is to master confidence and momentum. Here's the thing, with type A personality types, we're trying to do so many things at once, we're like always striving for the next thing. Sometimes we're winning without even realizing. So one of the things I get my, my guys to do is have a brag book where every single night they write down three things they're proud of. And if you had a really crappy day, let's just say you're stuck in bed all day, then your three things would be, I successfully stayed in bed, I went to the toilet twice, and I had a hot cup of tea. You know, like you have to find three things. Yep. What I find that gives us is momentum. You know, today might be small, but tomorrow they're, they're bigger wins. And at the end of the week, you've got 21 wins, which just protects your confidence because shit will hit the fan, right? But this keeps you going forward. So number one, they might not need 12 months. Number two is confidence and momentum. Number three, identify what your one thing is. The book, The One Thing, you know, the title gives it away. You don't have to read it, but he basically says, what's the one thing you need to be doing which will help you get to your goal? It's probably not Snapchatting plus Instagram storying plus three Facebook lives plus blogging plus YouTube channel plus, you know, a podcast if that's not your thing. It's probably not doing all of those things, right? Um, yeah, exactly. So it's narrowing down like what the main thing is. And I think that's key. No matter what business you're in, like if you're not ruthlessly guarding your time and dude, you know, this. like two hours of focus time beats 12 hours of, you know, unfocused time. Right. So I think a couple of hours every day on your one thing, whether that's sales, whether it's that's mastering a skill or getting leads, whatever it might be. Number four is to master selling. And everything from the conversation, how to deal with objections, a bit of a framework to use around influence and asking good questions in psychology is, is super key. And no matter, you know, I, I think that's for any business owner, but especially anyone in the health wellness space, sales is, is so important. And number five is to get some coaching. Whether it's someone who just mentors you, who's been there, done that, whether it's a paid coaching mentorship, um, it will get you there faster. So they're my, they're my big five. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, was reflecting on that. There was a question put up in uh, a Facebook group I'm part of, um, which asked like, what, who influ who's influenced your training the most um, as a personal trainer, like in terms of yeah. general coaches. And I realized in hindsight, thinking about it, where I've made the best progress has been when, as a personal trainer, when I've actually got personal training, or as a coach when I've actually got coaching. Um, yeah. So it's, it's really, and as a business uh, 
coach or somebody who helps mentor people every now and then with business, when I've got business coaching myself, I've been able to relate it so much more easily to the client in front of me because I can kind of, I know what it's like to be in their shoes. And also I can look at the way that somebody else is coaching me and go, I probably would do it a little bit differently. And that's what gives me that extra little buzz on top of that. Um, So I think coaching has that many more benefits, that many benefits to it. um, If if you're just able to get it, whether it's helping you create momentum or whether it's actually transferring it into the business or or coaching that you're doing at the time. A hundred percent. I don't think you might not, you know, if you're in business for 50 years, you might need a coach every single one of those years, but there are stages when you definitely do. And I think it's hot, it's hypocritical of us to say to a potential client, you need accountability. I'm going to give you the accountability and you need someone to hold you accountable if you're not getting that yourself. And yeah, the universe has, universe has funny ways. Like if you're not doing what you believe in, then I don't think it's very congruent to say to somebody else and they're going to subconsciously pick up on that. Yeah, definitely. Um, where, what's sort of the best resource that you've used on sales or, or how have you um, figured out the best way to sell to people? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good question. I think there's a, I've done, dude, I've done so many sales courses. My first, when I first opened the gym, I joined a mentorship in the USA and was flying there three times a, three times a year, um, which was awesome because there wasn't that much in Australia at the time. And from that, I learned a sales script, like every single word. It was like a scene from the Wolf of Wall Street. I knew when to pause, when to make a joke, when to smile. Like I had it, you know, to the letter scripted. I think what works better though is a framework. You know, I teach my guys, I have like nine boxes that they go through and it's not so much a script. It's just certain things to, to, to take control and to, and to go through these nine phases, which most times will end up in a, in a positive decision for the person if they're a good fit. So I guess where to start, um, zero resistance selling would be one. And then I'd look to study influence and psychology. So like, Robert Cialdini's books are amazing, uh, Influence and Persuasion. And here's my number one thing that I've learned pretty recently in selling. And I credit this to who I heard it from, a dude called Taki Moore. He says, don't impress, assess. And what he means is instead of trying to, you know, if you're, if you're a potential client, instead of me trying to impress you with how great I am, I'm trying to assess you to see if you're a good fit or not. That sounds really simple, but I think the best tips always are, but that it takes that, the pressure off me to try to convince you. It takes the outcome away. Like if you're not a good fit, I'm going to tell you, sorry, Nick, you're not a good fit for me. Why don't you go see Joe Smith down the road? Um, and they can feel that you're not being pushy, that instead you are like the assistant buyer. Because nobody likes to be sold to, but they like to make a buying decision. So if you can help them make a decision, and not ram something down their throat, it's going to be way better for them, way less pressure, and it's easier for you. Yeah, I like that. That um, I mean, it comes back to as well, there's something else within sales where people say the, the prospect should be speaking for like 80% of the time or, or whatnot, but they should be doing most of the speaking as you go through, and I guess that's how you're making your assessment. That was something that interested me when I was doing some research on uh, on you before the podcast. I went on to your your website. Um, for anyone that's listening, www.petansley.com. Is there a .au? Yeah, that's right. Yep, .com. You'll find it. If you Google Pete Tansley, it's the first thing that pops up. And uh, your About Us page or About Me page um, were basically just listing off 
how somebody wouldn't be a good fit for you if they wanted yeah. this thing, this thing, this thing. I thought that was a really interesting uh, way of putting it and it was really easy to read. So obviously the copywriting stuff that you've been reading uh, has helped with that as well. Thanks, man. I'm, I'm, I'm glad it was uh, easy to read. Yeah, I think the About Me page should never be about me. It should be always about the person we, we want to help, you know? Yeah, exactly. And it made it really clear of what you would do for somebody. Totally. Oh, sorry. I think, I think early on I used to think that, you know, the people we put up on a pedestal are often these extroverted, charismatic people, right? But I think, or I believe now, I don't think that it's not, you know, you don't, it's not essential to be this outspoken extrovert to be great at sales. I'm definitely a learned extrovert. I'm an introvert at heart and I've learned to be extroverted. But I think people fear that sales, you need the gift of the gab. We need to, you know, be overbearing and, and do that. But you can actually do that with good questioning and good listening and not talking really miles per hour. Yeah, that's a great sort of start. Just keeping it really slow and, and also just being interesting, interested in the person. Totally. Pete, thank you so much for your time. Um, I think we basically got through most of the questions that I, that I wanted to talk to you. Really fascinating story and, and I love how you were able to change your mindset and, and come out of that um, even stronger. I don't think we've that's properly explained um, what you can do for people. So what what sort of... What would an ideal client or, or, or what does Pete Tansley as a brand do nowadays? Yeah, thanks, man. And thanks for having me on board. It's been a lot of fun today to chat about it. Yeah, so today I have a, a consultant and a coaching company that helps personal trainers, boot camp owners, uh, online fitness coaches to basically scale their business and make more impact. So essentially, you know, my perfect client is someone who is probably going to do well without me, uh, but with me, they'll do even better, they'll get there faster, they'll have a lot more fun, and they'll make far less mistakes. Um, yeah, so I run a, I've got a short course, which gets people up to speed really fast, and I've got a high-level uh, mastermind for people playing at a slightly higher game. Um, there's a lot more details on my website, but essentially I, I, I help PTs make a big impact. Yeah, which is what we all want to do as well. Yeah. Perfect. And so how can people find out some more about you? I've mentioned your website. Is that the best place to go? Yep. Website is great. There's some links there to connect. Um, all my handles are at Pete Tansley. So facebook.com forward slash Pete Tansley, instagram.com forward slash Pete Tansley. Uh, the blog and Facebook are probably my main forms of communication. And uh, there's some webinars you can watch. You can get, I uh, send out three emails a, a week with some helpful advice so you can find Heaps of info that way, or just reach out via Messenger as well. Perfect. Cool. Well, thanks again for coming on board. Um, I look forward to staying in touch and, and keeping updated with how uh, you go with impacting and helping other people impact the world. 100%. Dude, thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Thanks, Pete.